Hello and welcome to Brain and Avat. We have a very special episode today where Mark Oppenheimer, who is usually my co-host, will be our guest. Um, Mark is an advocate at the Johannesburg Bar and a philosopher, and he'll be talking today about free speech. And we also have another special guest who's not a guest this week. He's going to be an interviewer, co-host with me to interview Mark, and he's a previous guest of the show twice over, Spencer Case. Thank you for joining us. Mark, would you like to kick off with a thought experiment? Yeah, so it's a case by one of my favorite philosophers, Joel Feinberg, from his book, um, Offense to Others, and he calls it a ride on a bus. And he says, imagine you're sitting on a bus, um, you know, on this long journey um, off to another country, and uh, it stops off at various spots and new passengers keep joining. And uh, the first person who sits next to you hasn't had a bath in at least a month. They just have this very foul odor about them. And, uh, you know, it's really interfering with your olfactory senses. Um, the next person who walks on is wearing this, just the ugliest tie-dye shirt you've ever seen, the sort of brightest oranges and pinks and blues, and you have to kind of cast your eyes away. Um, then a, a group of people come on and they're carrying a coffin um, and they're all dressed in black, but it doesn't look like they are mourning the person in the coffin. In fact, they are shouting profanities about him and saying, I'm so glad that bastard has finally died. And at one point, they open up the coffin and they start pummeling his face um, with blows. Then someone else walks onto the bus and he's wearing a T-shirt um, of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it says, hang in there, buddy. Um, and uh, we then pull up to a, a group of different protesters. And uh, there's a, a group of, of feminists who say things like, um, you know, all men are trash. And then there's counter protesters uh, who have signs up saying, uh, keep the bitches um, barefoot and pregnant. And they're all carrying their signs in the back of the bus. Um, and there's a sense of tension between these, these sort of two protesters. And after death staring each other and shouting profanities at each other, um, this sort of shifts into some sort of sexual excitement and uh, the feminist and the, and the anti-feminist start making out on the bus, all in full view of everyone ripping off their clothes and eventually uh, copulating in front of each other. Uh, the bus ride proceeds and uh, someone else comes on the bus and he's fully clad in leather um, and you notice a particular armband on him, which is a swastika. Now, the question is this, Feinberg's trying to work out what are the kinds of things that we think are one, immoral because they're offensive, and two, the kinds of things that the state ought to interfere with and make illegal. So Mark, what's your answer to the question? Um, so I'm assuming that you're gonna think quite a bit of this is immoral. Um, so walking on with a swastika and a bunch of the other cases, perhaps pummeling a corpse with a hammer in front of you on the bus, um, especially if, it's very hard for you to get away from this. Let's say they're in the same compartment as you and there's no other seats on the bus. And the only way to get away from this is to get off the bus and be late for your meeting. I'm assuming you're going to think that a lot of these cases are immoral. People shouldn't be putting you in this position. But what is your position on where the government should be banning these activities? Yes, I think that's, the, that's that important line. And um, one of the things that Feinberg tries to do is think about, first of all, he wants to draw a distinction between harm and offense. So you might think that all of these things are offensive, but not so significant that we would call it an, an actual harm. You might not want to experience it, um, but there is no, let's say, physical violence done to anyone who could perceive it. So for example, you know, the corpse is not around to be to experience being punched in the face. You are just around to see this thing happen. Um, the other things that come up are, there's questions about, well, could you do any of this stuff in the privacy of your own home? And I think the answer should be, well, even if it's immoral to you know, walk around your house wearing a, a swastika and you know, clad in leather, um, it's not clear that the state ought to prevent that at all. Um, so we might think that people actually need to have a contact with what you're doing before the state could um, could regulate it. And I suppose the question is, on what are the bases? Is it that it's disgusting? And now there's going to be some sense in which some people find some things disgusting and some people don't. Um, so for example, there are just different cultural attitudes about, let's say, public nudity. Uh, in Germany, people um, will lie in the tear guards and in the nude and no one thinks anything of it. 
Um, I would think that in America or South Africa, people would be quite concerned about that and might want the state to step in and say, you need to protect us from these vile displays. The other thing is, of course, you know, Feinberg writes about this in a book, and there's quite vivid descriptions, and I haven't included all of his vivid descriptions, um, but he wouldn't want that regulated by the state at all. You know, the idea is that you can very quickly decide whether you want to pick the book up and read it at any point you can close the book. And as you point out with the bus ride, you could just exit the bus. Um, and we might imagine there's a difference between, let's say, uh, a privately run bus, a party bus, um, where everyone is told beforehand, this is a free-for-all bus, you know, let your freak flag fly, um, that everyone then knows what they're getting into when they get on this bus, versus the public amenities bus, which is, let's say, paid for by the state. And you might think the state can start to regulate that more. I was thinking you were going to go in a different direction here and maybe say that the bus just was a metaphor for society, right? And so it's not just a public bus, but the bus is representative of the public. And so we're all sort of in this vehicle in close space and, and what are we willing to put up with, with each other? And I wanted to ask you, I guess, about this distinction between offense and harm, because I don't think you're gonna be able to put a whole lot of weight on that. So if harm means physical harm, then I guess you can draw a distinction there. But I'm not sure that there's any really morally significant distinction between physical and emotional harm. It seems like physical harm might usually be more severe, but not necessarily always. I mean, you can consider this juxtaposition of things happening. So, you know, like in, we would call junior high school or middle school, two boys walking down the the uh, the hallway, one might, you know, shoulder bump the other. That's an, an interference with the person's bodily integrity to a small degree. Um, or you can imagine there's no bodily contact at all, but someone's just following this person around and shouting racial epithets. It, it seems weird to say that one of them is harm and one of them is offense. Um, I just don't think that that's a line that's going to be non-arbitrarily drawn. You could take a very inclusive account of harm and say that, you know, to harm someone is to interfere with their interests. Um, you know, there's views that you can harm someone without them even knowing about it. Um, so, for example, uh, uh, you have an interest in your wife not having an affair um, and she does it in secret. and You never find out about it, but you're nonetheless harmed. Um, so and then we can think about those degrees of harm. Um, I mean, it kind of tracks back to Mill. So Mill wants to sort of say, look, people should be, uh, you know, free to swing their fist to the edge of your nose and no further, that you want mutually compatible liberties. Um, and he wants to say there's a thing that passes a certain threshold where we can start to restrict the behavior and things that fall beneath that threshold. Now, I agree you're always going to have some line drawing problem, uh, but we have line drawing problems all over the show. And the question is, well, if we dump the word offense and just think well offense is a subspecies of harm you know you wanted to categorize those things that we think are repugnant but nonetheless allowable by the law that might be one way to sort of cash out what we mean by offense um i think it is right to think about this as a metaphor for our society generally it's not just the bus um you might think about it in terms of what are the kinds of things that you're willing to have around you um and is it about people's behavior? Um, and is it about speech acts? So you can imagine, uh, let's say someone has a, a billboard and they just want to show videos of the various things that I've described. Um, and it would require you to have to kind of cover your eyes whenever you were past that billboard. Would that be a step too far? Different to, let's say, having a, uh, a YouTube channel where people aren't obliged to look at it. Um, they can just not have a look at that stuff and those that are interested in it can look at it. Um, I think as well what you have in these situations is that there's there is no harm to someone else in that significant sense um one of the the things that feinberg talks about is this idea of what he calls profound harms so where it goes towards someone's deep rooted sense of of morality and so you might think for example that homosexual sex is immoral um and not only do you not want to uh, see it in front of you you don't think that it should be on display anywhere and you don't think that it should happen anywhere. So the mere idea of your homosexual neighbors um, copulating with each other is enough to make you feel profoundly offensive because you think it violates some kind of God-given standard. 
And Fireburn wants to say, well, tough. Um, there are just certain kinds of um, offenses or harms that you should not be protected from. Um, that in a pluralist society, people have different you know, ways of being. There's some things you just have to accept. But you can say, there's some stuff that I ought not to be forcibly confronted with. And the question is, well, how much of that should we be regulating? And under what conditions? Is it a matter of saying that we um, fine you or that we imprison you? Uh, you know, how do we regulate that sort of conduct or speech? One of the cases that you're very well known for, Mark, is um, a case where you represented a client who argued that the old South African flag should not be banned um, by government. In other words, you should not be banned from waving that flag. Um, so just some context for our non-South African viewers, the old South African flag represents the apartheid government, um, although I think there's some complication around that, and you can speak more about what the flag represents. But in the minds of many people, that old South African flag represents the old South African government, um, and apartheid was a very unjust system that treated people abominably. Um, and it seems like waving that flag is a perhaps not a form of speech, but a form of expression that would hurt a lot of people's feelings, uh, legitimately so. In other words, they are legitimate in feeling hurt by viewing the waving of that flag. Um, but your argument was that it shouldn't be deemed hate speech. Um, and because it shouldn't be deemed hate speech, it shouldn't be banned by government. So it may be immoral, but it shouldn't be banned. Um, so there you've drawn that line between offense and um, psychological harm on the one hand and actual hurt on the other. And you're saying that that the flag falls on the wrong side of that if you want to ban it. Um, can you speak a bit more about that case? Yes, I'll say a couple of things. The first is, of course, you know, uh, law and philosophy uh, can run in parallel to an extent, but there's some sense in which the meaning of words um, uh, evolves differently in different legal systems and in different philosophical texts. The South African Constitution, just sort of to give you an idea of our framework, um, says that we have very strong rights to free speech, barring three exceptions. The first is propaganda for war, the second being the incitement of imminent violence, and the third being hate speech. Now, hate speech is often a, just a completely ambiguous term, uh, so I can tell you what it means in South Africa, which is the advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion. Um, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. Now, it's different from the second thing that I mentioned in a couple of ways. The one is that um, instead of violence, we're talking about harm. Now, violence is meant in its ordinary understanding of destruction of property, interference with someone's um, bodily integrity. Um, harm has been understood to refer to sort of significant incursions in someone's, um, let's say, psychological states. Um, so much so that you would require seeing a therapist, something like post-traumatic stress syndrome would count, uh, financial harms uh, would count. But bear in mind, it is the incitement to these things. So it's not that the speech makes you feel that way. It's that you are calling upon others to visit this kind of harm on one of those four vulnerable groups. Uh, I was involved in a case where we um, argued that there, there could be room to expand that um, those four cases to a fifth case being uh, sexual orientation and that thus far has been accepted by our Supreme Court of Appeal. With regards to the flag, um, some of it is the legislation which governed the regulation of the flag talks about words and so there was a technical legal argument about whether a flag is a word um, but if we just step back a little bit and think about speech acts, I mean so in America there's a famous case of a person who um, wore a jacket that had this symbol and it said the draft um, and the question was whether that was protected speech and the view was that it would it would count it would be sufficient and speech has been expanded in that way we can think of expression as a broad thing like dance or painting now the argument um, that i raised on behalf of my clients in the old south african flag case was this just to say that um if anyone were to carry this flag um, to this client's um, rallies, they would ask them to put it away on the grounds that it's divisive, that it is uh, generally viewed as offensive. Um, but that's not the same as saying that it ought to be banned by the state. Uh, and one of the arguments was that if you ban it, you give it this enormous amount of power. So 
it was the case that that flag reigned in South Africa from 1927 uh, until 1994, when it was replaced by South Africa's new flag. It has its own interesting history um, in the sense that um, South Africa had gone through uh, a war um, between the English and the Dutch. Um, there was 27,000 um, um, Dutch women and children um, were, were killed in concentration camps by the British. Um, the British remained in South Africa, and then they had to live alongside each other. And so there was this question about, well, how do we reconcile this difficult history that we have? How do we sort of see each other as all citizens of this new country of South Africa? And so this flag was very much a flag of union, a flag of reconciliation. Um, then apartheid is put into place in 1948. Uh, that some would argue that the meaning of the flag shifts. In other words, it's not about reconciliation between the Dutch and the English. It became a symbol for for apartheid, um, and that when you know current South Africans see that flag, that a lot of them will see it as a symbol of apartheid, uh, and that that will be very uh, emotionally traumatic for some people. And so the question is, what happens if you ban it? You know, um, and our argument was that basically you hadn't seen this flag in a very very long time. Um, that. You, your social sanctions were sufficient to stop people from waving a flag like that because it would have been seen as a highly offensive thing to do and would you know, um, be bad for your reputation, bad for your employment, those sorts of things. Once the High Court banned the flag, um, what you found was a massive resurgence in it being used. Um, so people would change their Facebook avatars to either the flag uh, or to those colors which are... Um, actually the colors of the New York flag. It's um, it's blue, white, and orange. Um, there were calls to sort of ban all sorts of objects. Casta Semenya, who's a very famous African runner, um, had a pair of Nike shoes that had those colors um, because they're of the New York flag colors. And there were calls from our ministers to say, this is hate speech, this is abominable, she shouldn't be allowed to wear those shoes. And so the whole thing sort of became quite farcical. And I think the point is that you can recognize that a symbol or words might be immoral, but that the cost of banning them uh, is so onerous and will have so many repercussions that you ought not to do it. Two different kinds of uh, harm that might be associated with speech. And the one kind is that the speech act expression itself, its um, immediate effect on other people is the harm that we're concerned with. So microaggressions are, are th thought to be one category of harmful speech acts and expressions like this. It's the immediate psychological impact on the, the, the audience. And it seems like the examples of the offensive speech acts on the bus are all of this kind. There's no worry that anyone on the bus is inciting someone else to do violence or something like that. But then, you know, there's this other category that it's not like it's the speech act itself that we're concerned with, but it's acts of violence other kinds of harm that we're worried that these speech acts are going to cause others to do. It makes sense to me that there might be some ideas that are dangerous enough that, that society might want to ban them, either governmentally or through social sanction or something. But why is it necessarily associated with hate? Why is this emotion have to be behind the most dangerous ideas? It seems like a lot of people are attracted towards totalitarian ideologies for all sorts of psychological reasons. But why is hate this label for all sorts of speech that we worry about causing harm in, a, in its secondary effects? You might think about hate being a particular kind of speech that you could be worried about. As I say, in South Africa, the view is that it's a twofold test. So to express hatred about some of those groups, in other words, to refer to them racial epithets or to describe them as disgusting is not in and of itself um, prohibited um, that there must be this call to action as well um, that you must be calling on people to go and do something to those people um, now i suppose one of the questions is what if you just have the call to action without any of the advocacy of hatred you know why isn't that sufficient um, the other thing that you what you might think about speech is that there's a sort of temperature check that occurs um, so, for example, if you said something like, we should boycott these businesses, um, uh, because let's say, for example, you said, um, um, businesses run by uh, Israelis should be boycotted. That's a common uh, thing that you hear in the States and in South Africa. 
because of the um, boycott, disinvestment, sanctions movement. Um, now, you might think that that would cause harm if people acted upon it. Those businesses would would suffer a loss. Um, assume that it's not accompanied by something along the lines of uh, Zionists or Jews or 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 filthy pigs um, who uh, you know have whatever other anti-Semitic tropes you want to sort of attach. You just have the boycott call. You might think that the best way to deal with that kind of speech is through further speech um, to point out to people why a boycott would be a bad idea, um, why a boycott would uh, be unnecessary in the circumstances. Um, you could engage in the underlying issue. Um, that question about timing is important as well. So the idea in the South African constitution about the incitement of imminent violence is that the violence is going to happen now. So you can imagine a situation where you are standing in front of an angry mob um, and uh, the mob has surrounded someone and you say, you know, this person is a traitor. Uh, they, you know, they're deserving of death. And the, the mob is riled up so that they immediately kill that person. They rip them limb from limb. Um, we've made no mention of any of their sort of basic characteristics. It was just this person, but it was an imminent threat. And the argument with the hate speech stuff is that it's the kind of thing where you can, it can boil over uh, over time, that you can drip enough racist poison into a society where you're calling on people to go and harm a group. They might not be able to do it now, um, but eventually the scales will tip. Um, and you'll have this eruption of violence. And South Africa has had instances of this with regards to xenophobic violence. So uh, in 2008, I think 76 um, people from the rest of Africa uh, were brutally murdered, one of whom a Mozambican man named uh, Ernesto Namuwe um, was doused in gasoline and burnt alive um, based on this sort of escalating anti-foreigner sentiment. Um, and it tipped over. You know, the other classic case, of course, is Rwanda, um, where you sort of have ethnic tensions that eventually boil over into into genocide. And so the argument is that there are certain kinds of speech that they're hard to counter dialogue. Um, it's hard to sort of, you know, change people's minds through reason, and that you might then want to take other measures uh, to prevent the genuine acts of violence erupting. But I think all of this stuff is very different from the microexpressions case that you've given. I think, in other words, we might think it's impolite uh, if I say to you, you know, Spencer, but where are you really from? You know, um, uh, or, you know, sort of make some kind of comment about about your accent or, you know, whatever other kind of slights we could think of. Um, you know, we might think that, you know, to have the full force of the law come down on people like that is just inappropriate. And it has these chilling effects. So people just become very worried about what they could say, and there might be very important things that we need people to say. One of the examples I give um, in the bus case is the guy who, who you know wears a swastika. Now, my grandparents uh, escaped Nazi Germany in the 30s, uh, and if they didn't leave, they would in all likelihood have been exterminated. I think it's a bad idea to ban people wearing swastikas or ban Holocaust deniers. And I say this while accepting that that is one of the most repugnant things that you can do. But I want to know how many people are out there who hold those views, how many people are, are sympathetic to Nazi views, because then we can kind of keep an eye on them. Thank you for that information. Thank you for telling me how many of you hate mongers are around. So now I have a sense of how many resources we need to dedicate towards combating that. If you say it's banned, then we don't know. We lose that information. We're unsure of how many hate mongers there are floating around in our society. You're saying that there should be free speech. Government should not get involved, except in specific cases. Um, now, I want to try and push for a more extreme version of your view. So people often criticize your view for saying that um, it's too permissive. In other words, it allows too much free speech to be legal. Um, I want to try and push the other way and say, well, actually, your view is not permissive enough. Government should never be involved in the regulation of speech. Um, why not just encapsulate all the cases where you say that what a person is saying should be stopped by government, if that's your position, and say instead, those are cases that are immoral and there should be social sanctions against that speech rather. Why not just go the social sanction route completely when it comes to the regulation of speech and not bring government into the picture at all? Well, I think there are certain things that social sanctions uh, are going to be insufficient at. Um, so you can imagine the sort of demagogue political leader who is calling for uh, for genocide 
um, that is instructing people to go and commit um, acts of terrorism, arson, murder, uh, and that people are doing it. The state could go and punish those people who firebomb the buildings or go and kill the children. Um, but I think that you might also want to be able to punish the person who's instructing them to do it as well. So if you think about someone who hires an assassin, they don't pull the trigger. They All they do is utter words to say, you know, go and kill this person. Um, and, you know, the view is that that person who does the hiring, who does the speaking, is themselves culpable for the murder and that they should be punished. It would not be sufficient for people to say, you know, well, I'm not going to be your friend anymore or you can't work here. Uh, you know, that person is deserving of a criminal sanction. Um, you might also think that, you know, the, the role of punishment is twofold. The one is because people deserve to be punished and the other one is as a deterrent effect. Uh, I do think that social sanctions are a good deterrent in a lot of cases and that a lot of people will hold their tongues because they don't want to, you know, lose their jobs and their friends and, you know, um, their reputation. But there are others who are immune to that, um, but they might not be immune to the idea of a prison sentence. Um, and when we are talking about these serious harms, um, I think that might be appropriate. I, there is an interesting debate as to whether you need the harm itself to have occurred. So in other words, you can have the person uh, calling for, for, for murder, calling for genocide, um, but it doesn't happen yet. The question is whether you should be able to give them a criminal sanction before the harm has occurred. In other words, in the mere calling, then the inciting, or whether you need to have the case eventuate before you can punish them. If you think that a good reason for allowing people to express Nazi views is to allow us to understand their prevalence in society, then it seems like you should also be opposed to sanctioning those views socially because people will decline to reveal their views if they think they're gonna be socially sanctioned for them. And I, I, I think this is a reductio, right? Somebody could argue, well, obviously it's worth sanctioning people socially for expressing Nazi views, even if there's some cost to us being able to understand how many people hold these views. And so if you think that, why couldn't that be used to argue for full-blown censorship as well? The kinds of social sanctions that you can get might come from people that fall outside of your community. So um, in other words, they can't carry a sanction that affects you um, because those in your community are, you know, let's say all Nazi supporters and or, you know, uh, don't think less of you for, for saying uh, the Holocaust didn't happen or, you know, uh, Jews are scheming behind some sort of um, sinister plot. Uh, they all think, oh, that's wonderful. You know, you're one of us. And so the social sanctions have no effect on them. I suppose you might think it, it will drive some of that speech away, the social sanctions. So some people will harbor racist or anti-Semitic views. Um, and because there's the threat of losing their jobs, that they, they won't say anything. And so you do lose some of that information. Um, I, I think that, again, we're talking about degrees of punishment. Um, and there are some social sanctions that I think are so extreme now um, where we might be driving these views underground. And that might be a reason to rethink some of the social sanctions that we have. So, for example, um, it's not just that we sanction the person who says the stuff, but let's say someone who provides them a platform. So you could imagine um, a uh, Ricky Lake show um, where she says, I'm going to host a bunch of uh, neo-Nazis so I can kind of try and understand their position. And you've got an audience that's watching. Um, and someone's saying, Ricky Lake has provided nice to the platform. We should boycott Ricky Lake. Um, and so now you have this sort of chilling effect problem. Uh, and again, we, we haven't had any firm government sanction, but we're still losing the information. Um, and so, you know, Mill does caution against this idea of the, the tyranny of, of the majority in terms of, you know, being too strong with the kinds of things that you won't tolerate in a society. You know, to tolerate something is not to approve of it. It's necessarily to dislike it, to say, you know, I don't like that you hold this view, that you said these things or you utter this behavior, but I will tolerate it in the sense that, you know, we're not going to throw you in jail. We're not going to interfere with your speech rights. We're not going to shout you down. We can very politely disagree with you. We can point out why you're wrong. Um, we cannot engage in the activity. Um, but I think you are right to say that there is some level of social sanction that itself becomes dangerous.
the discussion's been quite um, abstract. I want to nail you down on specifics. So um, racism, um, that's, that's, a, that's, that's something which a lot of people have a lot of thoughts on, uh, and, and those thoughts are generally highly negative. So if you express um, explicitly racist views, um, the view is that you should be um, either canceled socially or, or legally um, uh, in some way. Um, what is your view on racism, firstly? And secondly, um, transphobia. So let's say um, you express explicitly transphobic sentiment. Um, should you be um, cancelled? Should you be legally um, harmed in some way or legally set back in some way? We have one problem with both of those terms is that what counts as racist or transphobic, I think, has shifted quite dramatically over time. The narrow view of racism is this, which is to um, arbitrarily discriminate against someone on the grounds of their race. Um, so in other words, there is no reason why you are treating them poorly on the grounds of their race. And the other one is to so take the view that some races are superior to other races in virtue of being a member of that race. Um, one of the additions from the critical race theory movement is to say, well, it's those things plus institutional power. Um, and so claims like black people can't be racist in America because they don't hold a sufficient amount of institutional power. Um, now, then you kind of get this adjuster scale about what counts as racist. So in other words, it's not um, things like the Ku Klux Klan, you know, coming up to your, your house and setting a cross of light on your lawn, you know, and, uh, and shouting racial epithets at you. It'll be these other kinds of slights, like saying to Jason, you know, but where are you really from? Um, you know, those sorts of things that are more subtle, those microaggressions. The genuine cases of racism, someone has done something immoral. Um, you know, they have a bad reason for treating someone in an inferior way. Um, so, by the way, you know, when you have these critical race theory lessons where people are told that whites are devils um, or that whiteness is inherently immoral or arrogant, those sorts of things, that just strikes me as racism in the first sense. You've made an assumption about someone on the basis of the amount of melanin they have in their skin. Uh, I think that's abhorrent. Um, now, I generally think from a matter of strategy, um, the best way to deal with this stuff is not through banning it. Um, it's a matter of trying to counter dialogue it, um, to persuade people of the problems with these kinds of views. I think that if you take too much of a heavy handed approach, you wind up with a backfire effect. Um, so that's a strategic reason not to make it illegal. Um, you might think that those people are deserving of some kind of punishment, um, but that if you were to punish them, you would create martyrs, you would create backlashes. Um, and so that's a reason not to do it. Transphobia, I think we get into even further territory around what counts as transphobic. So we recently had Kathleen Stock on our show um, and to talk about her new book, Material Girls, where in quite a considered way, she tries to interrogate these questions around, you know, what is sex? She has three different biological accounts of what sex is. What is gender? Four different accounts of gender, whether it's metaphysically possible to change your sex, whether it's possible to change your gender, uh, what the norms would be. Um, and there's quite a, you know, one might disagree with her, you know, we had a, a, I think, a quite good back and forth discussion with her, but she's often labeled as a transphobe and as a bigot. Uh, and while at the same time saying, you know, I don't think that um, trans people should be harmed in any way, I have trans friends, um, you know, those sorts of statements. And so I worry about those terms um, when they're used in this nebulous way. And so I'd be very wary of a statute that sort of said, like, we should punish racism and punish transphobia because of the way in which those 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 terms can uh, can be radically shifted over time. Um, you might want to have a sophisticated moral account about why genuine bigotry is a bad thing and an immoral thing. I think that's very different from prohibiting it from the law. So there's a distinction that you just brought up that's very interesting, which is the distinction between the racist expression and the racist. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's something which uh, is glossed over um, today often, um, this idea that if you ever utter something that is deemed to be racist, then you are, ra you are racist, not just what you've said, and that there's no way to escape that. Um, so Kathleen Stock uh, is a good example. She has been labeled as a transphobe and it would make no difference if her views changed in future. 
she would still be a transphobe because of what she said at some point. And of course, in our digital age where everything is recorded uh, and every every tweet you ever made is screenshot, screenshotted and kept for posterity, it's impossible to escape your legacy. Um, do you have any thoughts about this? As a society, we we took the view that you know you could perform a wrong. Let's say you you stole from someone, um, and you repented and you were punished. At some point in time, we might think there's a problem with keeping to refer to you as a thief. Um, you know whether that's sort of emblazoned on your soul for all eternity. That you know you might say this person committed the act of theft once, but that doesn't make them a thief forever. Um, you know, uh, similarly, you might think that with with uh, someone who lied once, that they are not always a liar. Um, and so someone who has, let's say, uttered a racist slur once, you might not think, well, that makes them a racist forever. Uh, it seems that being a racist is a sort of matter of having a certain set of beliefs um, and, and continual attitudes. I mean, if you think about this in an Aristotelian sense, you know, virtues and vices are not one-off things. They're things that you practice. You know, so someone who is generous um, isn't someone who makes one donation. It's someone who, you know, through their behavior over time in a prolonged way has demonstrated that they are generous. So there is definitely a connection between your actions and, you know, the character traits that you have. Um, but I think there is this worry that, as you say, one slight um, in these particular minefield categories of racism and transphobia is sufficient to permanently label you in that way. Um, and that seems like it's not really capturing reality properly. You're both hovering over what seems to me to be the fundamental contradiction in the way that the left is treating racism now, both in the US and I guess in South Africa, which is that on one hand, it is a structural thing. It's an institutional thing. Um, it's not supposed to be personal. On the other hand, if someone does or says something racist by ch you know constantly changing standards, they are a racist and they must be punished. But if you really take seriously this idea that it's institutional, then that kind of retributive attitude doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I can imagine a society in which you do have structural racism in the sense that um, all the laws and the social conventions are geared against a particular race. So I think apartheid South Africa was structurally racist. In other words, the state decided where black people uh, could live, who they could marry, um, what kinds of work they could do, um, you know, that wasn't just individual actors um, performing acts of racism, it was an edifice that was in place. I think you can dismantle such a system by having law reform, uh, and you might think that post-apartheid South Africa for a very brief period of time embraced the attitudes of non-racialism. So there were no longer um, laws in place that des designated people as being part of a particular racial group, so our Population Registration Act was repealed. Um, People could live in areas they wanted. They could choose, you know, who to marry. There was no prohibition on interracial marriage. Uh, they could work in the fields that they wanted to. We've now created a series of laws which um, make it very difficult for other racial groups to prosper. Um, and we've reintroduced um, forms of racial classification uh, and preferencing systems and things like that. Um, in a society, of course, where um, being a black African is to be the majority uh, and being part of another a minority racial group is to be a minority. So there are a minority of people that, let's say, would be designated as white or as um, Indian or as of mixed race. Um, and for a lot of those groups, it's, be, it's become quite difficult to get employment, to prosper, to... Uh, and you might think, again, what you now have is structural racism. I do think one ought to be su suspicious about these claims about structural racism. Um, and I do think there are certain claims that are overblown. Um, so... In America, it'll be claims that, you know, the, the police system is structurally racist. And I think you do have to sort of not just look at differential outcomes, for example. So let's say it's the case that um, um, black African men are more likely to be um, to be incarcerated. You know, you might want to interrogate, well, is that because the system is designed in such a manner um, that it is imbued with racist intent or that particular police officers have a racist intent? Or is there some neutral factor? Is it that you're more likely to be um, in a in a crime-ridden area? Um, there's more likely to be levels of poverty. That there's some racially neutral factor which can explain it. Um, one way of teasing this out is to sort of uh, acknowledge that in America, at least, um, not all people that are black are African Americans. So some are, let's say, from 
uh, from Nigeria, some are from uh, the Caribbean, and it seems like their income levels, that their incarceration rates, that their education levels are all quite different. Um, and so even though to a racist who was discriminating against people based on the color of their skin, um, you would expect them to be treated all in the same way, it turns out that the their levels of prosperity and the kinds of lives they're leading are quite different from each other. And so that might make us want to investigate other kinds of factors. You might think, for example, that a society is just structurally anti-poor, um, that if you're within a certain class level, the society is geared against you. And that's the thing that you might want to address. One thing I'm a little concerned with here is that it seems like the reasons that you're giving for opposing censorship are like strategic, or if we tried to censor something, we would just drive the idea underground. We wouldn't really be able to stamp it out. So like the thing that's holding us back really is this concern about efficiency. Like if we only had the right technology to really stamp out bad ideas, then it seems like we could get around that objection. Maybe what government should be doing is developing a, a, a more extensive surveillance state uh, so that we can really stamp out these bad ideas. Um, so if that doesn't seem appealing, then it seems like we might want to have some other grounds um, on which to oppose censorship. Don't really know what's actually true. Um, you know, human beings are fallible. So one of the reasons why you might want to allow, um, you know, a variety of views out into the world is to try and determine what actually is true. Uh, if, we, if we become very convinced that we know the right thing in advance, um, you know, we may stamp out things that are actually true. So, for example, if we think about, um, you know, views on how to treat COVID, um, there has been big tech censorship about certain kinds of drugs, um, certain theories about where the virus um, emanated from. Um, famously, the one was the claim that the virus, you know, um, emanated from uh, a lab leak in Wuhan, um, and that view was censored. Um, and now there's been a reversal on the basis that it's a possibility. Um, that there might have been a lab leak. Now, there's a danger in thinking that you know what is either true in in the sort of factual sense. In other words, uh, if you if you have a view that the Earth is at the center of the universe, and someone says something heretical like "No, it's not," uh, and they try and give you some evidence that you punish them and you miss out on the truth, and the other one is on certain moral attitudes. Um, so, for example. It would have commonly been the case that people would have believed that slavery was a permissible thing to do and it would have been very unpopular to have lobbied against slavery um, or to have lobbied in favor of gay marriage or interracial marriage um, or all sorts of things where you know people held a very strong strong position and then ultimately through the force of reason uh, changed their minds on those issues um, so it's not clear to me that even if you upped the tech uh, that you could guarantee what it you know what is true in advance the best way to work out is what's true is to allow people to sort of debate it out. Um, and even if um, you aren't getting new information in, you are still reminded as to why your view is true because you're hearing a contrary position. So I think it's quite useful to have some flat earthers floating around because they remind you, why is it that I think that the earth is geo-checked? What are the bits of evidence that make me think that? Could I be mistaken? Um, that's that's important. So you don't just have this dead dogma that floats around. You understand the underlying mechanics of, of the beliefs that you have. So that really is what our show is about. Um, so our show is about providing conflicting views. Um, and, you know, something that guests of the show might have picked up is that we almost never agree with the guest who's on the show. Um, not only for the sake of argument, but actually our views differ and even my view and Mark's views differ. Um, and it's, it's one of the, the great virtues of philosophy is that we're able to sit and debate these ideas um, and through doing so both deepen each other's views, even though they disagree with each other, um, but also arrive hopefully one day at the truth with a capital T. Um, and yeah, I see enormous value and virtue in that approach. Um, philosophers traditionally have felt like they could entertain any subject matter at all. Um, philosophers entertain all sorts of weird and wonderful views. You know, the idea that maybe none of this is even real is a, is a highly radical view that we're all brains in a vat. Um, 
or something like the view that it is better never to have been born. Um, you know, David Benatar has written a treatise about why it would be better for humanity's sake to become extinct. This is a radical view. Um, but those things are however useful for us to try and tease out what our intuitions are about the nature of reality, about morality. Um, and as you say, it's not that we um, say, well, you know, all ideas are good ideas. We do think that there is a truth with a capital T and we want to try and find it. And that the best way to find it is to allow all these different ideas. Um, I think there's also a difference between writing something in an academic journal um, where you can pause and reflect and think about something versus the situations where you've got the demagogue, you know, political leader in front of the rally. You know, there's a there's a big difference in terms of the, the consequences of the harm that might ensue um, and the sort of ability to have critique. Now, you might think about a theory like critical race theory as being something that was born in academia, you know, in the 80s and took a very long time to kind of reach into the public consciousness. And you might think is poisoning people's minds because it makes them hold views about superiority and inferiority of different racial groups. Um, but you might think that the best way of countering that is through more speech. Um, I think what's difficult is that when bad ideas grip a society for a while um, and and it seems like you know, you're not going to be able to get out of this bad idea, um, that the temptation is to have some very strong um, reaction from the state to say something needs to be done. We need the jackboots of the police to kind of come in and suppress these dangerous ideas. Um, the problem is that they might start suppressing other ideas. There's these two great works of literature that deal with um, the, the sort of question around strong states and, and restrictions of speech. Uh, Spencer's wearing a fantastic shirt, um, which references the first book, 1984. He's got an Ingsoc shirt on. Um, and I think that gives us this sort of vision of these, you know, communist or Nazi states um, that rewrite history, that have a state-sanctioned account of what it is that's actually happened, or the things that you're allowed to say, redefining words out of existence so that people can't even think the ideas, you know, and we do see elements of that, and it's very frightening. The other kind is um, Fahrenheit 451. So it's this Ray Bradbury book, and it starts off with this... Um, this fireman, and instead of putting out a fire, he's um, setting a, a library alight. And again, you think, oh, this must be a fascist state that's burning books. And as the novel progresses, you realize that this wasn't called for by the state, this was called for by citizens. And it starts off with a claim like this to say, look, there's this book. And the book's a good book, but there's just one word in there we find really offensive. And you know, it affects our cultural community can't you just reprint the book with that that words omitted? People say, you know what? Why not? I mean, it's just one word. You know, we understand that it causes you this emotional pain, of course. And so you relent and that word is removed. And then someone else says, well, actually, there's this sentence and there's this paragraph and maybe just this book and maybe just this author and maybe just this library. And that's the worry that you sort of start to move forward and forward and forward until you eradicate, you know, anything that could possibly offend anyone. And then you are left with nothing. Well, since I am wearing the uh, 1984 T-shirt, maybe I should step forward in defense of uh, censorship, just for the for the sake of devil's advocacy. So, it seems to me that the internet is a pretty good test case for this idea that if you air all views, the truth will will rise to the top. You might not be able to say everything you want on every website, but there's some place on the internet where you'll be able to say whatever it is you want. And the result is that the internet is an epistemic cesspool. People have all of these options. You have this information glut and people aren't out there looking for the truth. You've got all of human wisdom and people are, you know, Googling porn and Alex Jones and whatever else. And people just have this tendency to choose what it is they want to believe, you know, to take Plato's, criticism of democracy, people are going to go with the word of the confectioner over the physician every time. The idea that truth rises to the top is, is really questionable. And you could find evidence to support it and you can find evidence that goes the other way. Falsehood also has a better shot at things because falsehood is often more salacious. Um, you know, people love hearing gossip 
Um, if you think about how conspiracy theories tend to travel very quickly, there's a disadvantage that the truth has. Um, you know, the sort of old adage that, uh, you know, a salacious lie will have traveled all the way around the world before the truth even got its uh, trainers tied. Um, but I do think what you find is that over time, we merge towards truth, um, that the lies, the gossip, the junk, that stuff is always going to be around, um, and it will hold some traction for a while. Um, but eventually, it gets pushed aside. Um, and so it's difficult in the face of, you know, of the chaotic noise and of the filth and the grime to sort of say, can't we just ban that stuff? Can't we just get to the good truth already? Um, you know, why do we have to waste our time with, you know, uh, all this sort of false stuff? Can't we just get the state to step in uh, and guide us towards the truth? And the problem is that the cost of that is so big because the state's not very good at knowing what's true or it has a particular agenda that doesn't align with truth. Um, or as we've pointed out, this doesn't only have to come from the state, it can come from society, that people's societal attitudes might not be truth seeking either, that they're uh, guided by their own problems. Um, and so once we start restricting speech, um, you know, we, we're going to wind up in a much worse state of affairs. Um, you know, Thomas Sowell has this famous line that there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Um, and I think it's we have to recognize that there are going to be trade-offs to allowing free speech. People are going to say horrible things. They're going to read the kinds of books that we disapprove of. Uh, they're not going to become these, um, you know, angels all the time. Um, but we will get some wonderful side effects too. Um, and, uh, you know, there are people who are willing to troll through all the noise so they can come up with great you know, uh, great scientific discoveries, great works of art, great literature. There is some level, I suppose, of, I think, wanting to be empirically sensitive about these things, that you shouldn't just hold these maxims on the grounds of, of faith, uh, that they should be reinterrogated. You know, I think that if you care about truth seeking, then you want to be able to look back on these mechanisms themselves and always ask yourself, well, is this actually the best way to get a truth? Maybe it's not. And so, you know, the, the free speech junkie thinks that maybe there's even times when you could uh, reevaluate the norms of free speech. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation and one that I think we've been wanting to have for a long time. Um, we often bring on proponents uh, for free speech on the show um, to discuss these issues, but it's great to have your views finally fully fleshed out. Um, so thank you very much for appearing. And uh, I look forward in our next show to be on the other side of the interview table with you. And, uh, and yes, here's to many more episodes of Free Brain in a Vat.